A new molecule, LAC-phi, might be the reason behind how exercise can reduce appetite, food intake, and induce weight loss. Tune in for details only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 130. A whole 130 episodes. Whenever I hit a round number like that, it makes me stop and appreciate this show, how much it has given me. I have learned so much as a result of studying for this podcast. I've become a better and well-rounded scientist because of it. I have met and formed relationships with many of you listening right now, who I likely wouldn't have connected with otherwise. So thank you for coming along this podcast journey with me. And I will continue to do this podcast for a long time coming, I believe, because I love doing it. I love the topics I cover. I love connecting with all of you. And this podcast allows me to be the scientist that I want to be. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, one of my good friends, Richard, shared a really fascinating study in our Labs Journal Club, and I found it so intriguing. In fact, it's fascinating enough to be the center of a whole podcast episode for us today. This study is about a newly discovered molecule coined LAC-phi, which is the combination of lactate and the amino acid phenylalanine. So what does LAC-phi do? How can we increase it with our everyday activities? I'm going to get into that very shortly. But before we do, let's talk about a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Let's talk about the discovery of a very related molecule to today's episode. Back in 1780, a Swedish chemist, Carl Wilhelm Scheele, was the first to record the discovery of lactate. Now, where did he discover it? in sour milk. However, Scheele identified many molecules, not just lactate. He's probably best known for discovering oxygen, which he first called vitriol air, with vitriol often meaning bitter or caustic, and later called oxygen fire air, as pure oxygen is quite flammable. There is a bit of a funny controversy surrounding the discovery of oxygen, in fact, and who discovered it first. There are three players in that game, Scheele, Priestley, and Lavoisier. Scheele discovered oxygen as early as 1772, more than a year before Joseph Priestley. Unfortunately, though, Scheele's experiments were published after Priestley's in 1777, probably because of procrastination by Scheele himself and his associate Bergman. Now, Lavoisier, the third player in this game, came in and falsely claimed that oxygen was discovered at almost the same time by, quote, Mr. Priestley, Mr. Scheele, and himself. 
Now, this was a lie, not only because Joseph Priestley had communicated his discovery to Lavoisier in 1774 in person, but also because Scheele had sent Lavoisier a letter in the same year describing his 1771 discovery of oxygen. This letter from Scheele to Lavoisier was kept hidden by Lavoisier and then by Lavoisier's wife's brother's descendants for 219 years. Amazingly, Scheele made his landmark discoveries over a short lifetime, and unfortunately he died at the age of 43. They speculate that he died as a result of tasting his discoveries, including one which was sold widely as Scheele's green cake frosting. The green color was due to a very poisonous compound he discovered, arsenic. So the discoverer of lactate, and probably oxygen, unfortunately died an early death due to his discovery and tasting of another compound he discovered, poisonous arsenic. It's a wild story, isn't it? Back in the 1700s, the debate over who actually discovered oxygen and just how they were exposed to these molecules and how they dealt with them at that time. So now, let's get into the core takeaways of today's talk. I came across a really fascinating publication published in June this year in the journal Nature by Lee and colleagues. It was a really well-designed study, a culmination of multiple studies, in fact, that identified a metabolite in the blood that appears to be elevated during bouts of high-intensity exercise, and this molecule can reduce appetite, reduce food intake, and increase weight loss. That molecule has been coined LAC-PHI, which is lactate and phenylalanine combined together. So this study pinpoints a mechanism as to how high-intensity exercise may influence appetite, food cravings, and weight loss. But this study opens the door to a lot of questions. For example, can LAC-PHI be taken as a supplement to reduce appetite and induce weight loss? How is LACFI working? Where is it acting in the brain to impact appetite? Are there any other ways that we can increase LACFI in our body besides bouts of high-intensity exercise? Now, let's get into those scientific details. So the scientists in this study published in the journal Nature by Lee and colleagues this year used a technique called metabolomics. Now this is a technique I absolutely love and one that I use myself and I plan to use this technique when I start my own lab in the very near future. It is a fantastic technique because metabolomics has the capability to look at hundreds of molecules in a sample at a time. So hundreds of metabolites in our blood, for example. By contrast, so much emphasis has been placed on genetics sequencing in the last decade because genetics do really give us very insightful information. So genetic sequencing or RNA sequencing does give us useful information about our health. For example, all of us have some kind of allele or single nucleotide polymorphism, abbreviated as SNP, in some of our genes. These are very tiny little differences in our genetic code, and they may influence how a protein functions in our body. Let me give an example. There are some alleles or SNPs for a gene that encodes the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in humans, where a specific nicotine receptor is less functional than everyone else's. As a result, if these individuals with these SNPs for these nicotine receptors are exposed to nicotine through cigarettes, vapes, tobacco, etc., 
they may be more likely to become dependent on nicotine because of this genetic difference. Because that nicotinic receptor is expressed in part of the brain that regulates nicotine aversion and satiety and satiation, that the satiety signal doesn't work as well, and therefore these individuals with this genetic SNP may not feel satisfied with low amounts of nicotine, but would require more nicotine. And in fact, they may not even feel the negative effects of high doses of nicotine, and thus are more likely to become dependent to nicotine. So this is the power of genetics. That was just an example to show that a small difference in a genetic code for a receptor can really influence our lifestyle, our health, our behavior. Genetics as though we all have, let's think of genetics as though we all have the same storybook. Like let's say the storybook is Cinderella. But all of us on our page 26 have something that's different from one another. As scientists, what we are trying to do is that we are trying to find out if page 26 is just descriptive and not important to the storyline. Like, is page 26 just describing the castle layout in the Cinderella story? Or is page 26 pivotal to the plot, like when Cinderella loses her glass slipper? If, in some of our books, Cinderella does not lose her glass slipper, then the prince may never find her. It'll change the whole outcome of the story. You see, looking at genetics is like this. As scientists, we need to figure out if the small genetic differences in one part of the genome is just descriptive or is it pivotal to our health. But by contrast, what the scientists used in today's topic episode or the study I'm going to talk about is that they use a newer, more recently advanced approach called metabolomics. And that, instead of genes, looks at the outcome of our lifestyle and our genes. So let me give another analogy to compare genetics, what we've been looking at for years, to this new technique, metabolomics. Then I promise I'll jump into the study findings. We can think of genetics as the catalog of paint. Like if we're going to buy paint, let's look at the catalog and look at the hundreds of different paints that they offer in that catalog. Then we can think of RNA, or the transcripts, which is the next step, as the paint itself. The cans of paint, the bottles of paint. But then the metabolites, our metabolome, metabolomics, in our body are like the final finished painting. We can tell a lot about a person if we look at their metabolome. Like what we can identify is what is in their diet. What nutrients do they consume? How good are they at metabolizing the nutrients in their food? Were they exposed to any pesticides in the fruits and vegetables they ate? We can see the pollution that people have been exposed to how we metabolize fatty acids, if we are taking any medications or if we've taken any drugs. So metabolomics tells us a lot about what we are exposed to in the environment and how we metabolize these things. So part of the reason that I love this paper that I'm talking about today is because it focuses on the approach and newer, newer technique of metabolomics in order to find a new molecule that is related to exercise and weight loss. Up to this point, it would have been very rare for a study to publish an untargeted metabolomics experiment like this. So I share this paper with all of you today because I think this study is opening the door for a lot of fascinating similar studies where we are going to discover new molecules that we didn't know existed before. So the first experiment that the scientists conducted in this study by Lee and colleagues is that they had mice run on a treadmill 
or they had mice just be sedentary in their cage. The scientists then collected small blood samples from the mice prior to the exercise, after the exercise, as well as at the same time points but in non-exercising mice. Then they used this untargeted metabolomics technique to look for hundreds and hundreds of molecules in the blood. And they found many molecules that increased with exercise, such as malate, fumarate, succinate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, lactate. But the scientists chose to focus on one specific molecule that increased almost the highest amount, I believe it was in the top three, in the blood with exercise. And that was the molecule N-lactoyl-phenylalanine, which they coined LAC-phi. It essentially is a combination of lactate and the amino acid phenylalanine. Now, a really cool feature of this paper is that the scientists then also looked at racehorses and humans to see how the metabolites in the blood would change from exercise as well. So they did not only look just at mice, which the grand majority of papers and studies do. They then chose to look at two further species, and they also noted a rise in the molecule LACFI in the blood with exercise. Now, this is where the scientists really started to get into the physiology. So far, they show that this new molecule, LACFI, increases significantly in the blood of exercising animals and humans. But what does LACFI do? So the scientists treated non-exercising mice that had access to an unhealthy diet that was high in fat and contained refined sugar. The scientists then injected the mice daily with either saline or the molecule LACFI at a dose of 50 milligrams per kilogram body weight. The scientists then tracked the mouse's food intake, their body weight, and their exercise. Now, three hours after the injection of LACFI, the scientists noted that the saline-treated mice, by comparison, started to increase their food intake as usual and expected. But the mice that were injected with LACFI took in far less food. By the end of 12 hours, the LACFI-treated mice ate about one-third the food of the control group. Now, interestingly, their physical activity levels did not change, but their body weight reduced by about 10% over 10 days, whereas the control mice had a stable body weight over 10 days. So if their body weight reduced by 10% over 10 days, this was not due to enhanced exercise, but seemed to rather be due to the intake of less food. So the scientists wanted to prove this another way, that LACFI could reduce appetite and enhance weight loss. They repeated the experiment and added in a pear-fed group. So this group of mice was treated with saline, but was provided the same amount of food that the LACFI mice ate. By the end of it, the LACFI treated mice and their pear-fed mice weighed the same. So this told the scientists that yes, indeed, LACFI seems to induce weight loss because it's reducing food intake and perhaps reducing appetite in these mice, and that's why we're seeing the weight loss. Interestingly, they also noted a reduction in blood glucose levels versus the control group, so there could even be an interest for LACFI in the context of diabetes. Now, to further prove this connection, the scientists eliminated the mice's ability to produce LACFI during exercise. So how did they do this? Well, they knocked out or deleted the gene CNDP2. Now, this gene produces a protein which is necessary for LACFI production. And in exercising mice this, that had this gene intact, so they were control wild-type mice, 
They ate less and did not gain weight as they got older with exercise. But if the mice did not have the normal expression of the gene CNDP2, then they did not alter their eating and they gained weight over time despite exercising. So what they showed was that LACV production and CNDP2 in response to exercise is necessary for this reduced appetite and induction of weight loss. So this begs the question then if any humans have SNPs or alleles for this gene CNDP2. Meaning in our population, do some people have a slightly different expression for this gene that renders it less functional or non-functional? Does that mean that when these individuals exercise, does their appetite still remain high? And do they have a hard time losing weight with exercise? So far, I haven't come across any data to suggest so, but this paper opens the door to further investigate that, how some people may have a harder time losing weight with exercise. So if we want to lose weight or gain control of our food cravings, how can we use this information to our advantage? Well, I think one of the coolest findings of this paper was that they showed that not all exercise was equal that certain types of exercise increase LACV in the circulation more than others. So firstly, the scientists analyzed the metabolites in the blood of 36 people who ran on a treadmill to full maximal capacity for 8 to 12 minutes. And the scientists noted an increase in LACV in the blood. And in fact, this was the third highest molecule to increase from exercise. Other molecules that were elevated in the blood were replicated in the previous studies that they had done, such as fumarate, succinate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, lactate itself. The next experiment aimed to see if all exercise increased LACV. For example, they looked at endurance exercise, resistance training, or high-intensity interval training, which I'll abbreviate as HIT training. So this experiment involved eight healthy men with the average age of 26, that had a normal body mass index, but were not particularly physically active. It would work out less than once a week. The scientists tightly controlled this experiment. They had the men eat the same food, and they were not allowed to exercise prior to the study days. The scientists even ensured that the participants had a car to commute into the study facility so they did not have to walk or bike in, for example. So this was a crossover experiment, so the eight men did all three forms of exercise, separated by 10 days in between. Now the endurance exercise involved the men to cycle on a stationary bike for 90 minutes steadily at 55% their VO2 peak, so 55% of their maximal effort, so moderate intensity. The resistance training involved weighted leg extensions. So they started with a warm-up of three sets of 10 reps, at 50% their max, 10 repetition load. Then two minutes of rest. Then they did six sets of 10 reps at their 10 rep maximum with two minute rest in between each set. So they did a ton of leg extensions that essentially targets the quadricep muscle the most. The last type of exercise was HIT or high intensity interval training. The HIT training started with a five minute warm up on a stationary bike followed by three sets of 30 seconds going all out to maximal effort. And in between each maximal bout, they were to bike steadily for four minutes. So basically, the HIT training was a 15-minute session on a stationary bike with high-intensity maximal effort for one and a half minutes total 
separated by moderate intensity cycling in between. So which of these exercises do you think increased LACB in the blood the most? Was it endurance? Was it resistance? Or was it HIT? You might have guessed it. It was the HIT workout. The high-intensity interval workout on the stationary bike increased LACV from approximately 25 nanomoles in the blood to 200 nanomoles, nearly 10 times. By contrast, the resistance training was next best, but it only increased LACV from 25 nanomoles to about 60 nanomoles, and endurance raised it from 25 nanomoles to about 35 nanomoles. So HIT training was by far superior for increasing LACV in the blood. They also found that LACV in the blood peaked at about 60 minutes after the HIT training and went back down to nearly baseline levels by about the three hour mark. So perhaps the effects of LACV peak at 60 minutes post-exercise and last about two to three hours post the high intensity workout. So I found this experiment of the published paper to actually be the most interesting to me because I remember growing up and reading fitness and health magazines and a lot of the times HIT training or high intensity interval training was suggested in order to help someone obtain and maintain a healthy weight, that it was the superior form of exercise. But no one really knew why or how, perhaps just assumed that HIT training influenced metabolism more than you know endurance training. But this study now really pinpoints that high-intensity interval training may actually influence our physiology or, or our metabolism in a certain way in order to reduce food appetite or reduce food cravings. And so as a result, we can utilize this information to help us curb our food cravings. Like if we know that we tend to crave sweets or junk food in the evening, perhaps we can plan to do a short high-intensity interval workout that's even 15 minutes long in order to increase our circulating LACV in order to help reduce our appetite and to gain control over our eating behavior. How about another approach to increase LACV? Because LACV contains the amino acid phenylalanine, let's talk about that amino acid for a moment. Now, phenylalanine is termed an essential amino acid, meaning that we must obtain it from our diet, otherwise we can become deficient. Now, phenylalanine itself is a very interesting amino acid, as Fitzgerald in the journal Nutrients in the year 2020 published a study in humans to illustrate that the intake of the amino acid phenylalanine itself may be able to reduce appetite and reduce food intake by stimulating the release of the satiety hormone cholecystokinin. So getting enough phenylalanine in our diet may be essential to ensure proper LACV production during exercise in order to help us gain control of our eating behavior. So sources of the essential amino acid phenylalanine can be found in foods rich in protein itself like beef, chicken, pork, tuna, tofu, pumpkin seeds, and pinto beans. What else besides our phenylalanine intake could potentially influence our LACV production during exercise? The scientists conducted some studies that illustrated LACV levels are dependent on lactate levels as well. So as lactate levels increase in our blood during exercise, it appears that so too does LACV. 
So if lactate production is dependent on lactate production during exercise, what determines lactate appearance in the blood? This is a bit controversial, but high intensity demands on the muscle appear to increase lactate in this study and others, and HIIT training again seems to increase circulating lactate the most as well compared to endurance and resistance training. You've probably heard of lactic acid building up in the muscle when working out, right? So let's dive into that a tiny bit. Anaerobic processes give rise to the production of lactate, which diffuses from our muscle cells to our blood. Now, McRae and colleagues back in 1992 in the Journal of Applied Physiology found that in untrained men, an endurance training program over time reduced the release of lactate into the blood as their fitness level and oxygen intake increased. They also noted that with increasing fitness over time, the ability to clear lactate improved in the men as well. But the clearance may simply mean it was transformed into other molecules like further energy or even lactate was transformed into lac fee, for example. So maybe as our fitness level increases, perhaps our ability to produce lac fee does too. A really good review was written by Ferguson and colleagues on lactate metabolism in 2018 in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. Lactate has often been viewed, viewed as being produced in low oxygen situations as a waste product, but the research as of late has really shown it is far more complex than this, that lactate is not just a waste product, but it is an intermediate in energy production, because lactate is carried in the blood to the liver, where it can be oxidized or converted to glucose via the process of gluconeogenesis. Now, interestingly, the notion that muscle fatigue during exercise is due to lactic acid or lactate build up is also controversial, and I remember hearing this back in my undergrad. Lactate could be the cause of muscle fatigue, but it could also be the result of muscle fatigue could also be the result of calcium and potassium increases in the muscle cell too. Now interestingly, lactate might have an impact on brain and neuronal signaling. Part of the cell-to-cell -cell lactate shuttle in sight of the astrocyte neuron lactate shuttle is a long-standing model for brain metabolism and it identifies how glucose can be the predominant energy substrate. That's what we thought for years, that our brain needs sugar, it needs glucose. However, in the last several years, there has been a lot of evidence to suggest that our brain can use other forms of energy such as ketones and now lactate. So you know I always love to bring in neuroscience. Maybe the lactate and lactate produced during aerobic exercise makes its way to the brain to serve as another energy source or to influence neuronal signaling. We don't really know the influence of lac fee on the brain yet, but it certainly must influence our brain regions involved in appetite, like the hypothalamus, or brain regions involved in satiety and feeling satisfied, like the nucleus of the tractus solitarius. So we don't actually know how lac fee is reducing appetite, but we, it must be signaling either from the body systemically to the brain or directly on the brain itself, but certainly there's going to be studies to look into that soon. So lastly, due to these findings that lac fee can reduce appetite and induce weight loss, we have to speculate that perhaps in individuals who cannot exercise, that supplementing with lac fee might be helpful in them achieving a healthy weight. Like certain individuals that have injuries, physical disabilities, that may be unable to move extensively and prohibit them from exercising. We have to beg the question, could a lac fee supplement work for them? Could it help in reduce their food cravings, reduce their food intake, and help them lose weight? We don't know that yet. 
but I bet you that this is a new direction that will come from this study very soon. LACV supplements do not exist yet, to our knowledge. We don't know the safety or how effective they would be in humans. But keep a lookout. I bet that is something that is going to hit the market and be investigated in clinical trials very soon. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. Let's briefly go over what I shared in today's episode. The scientists used the technique called untargeted metabolomics to identify new molecules in the blood when people and animals exercise. The scientists observed a new molecule called LAC-V, which is lactate bound to the amino acid phenylalanine. LAC-V appears to reduce appetite, reduce food intake, and induce weight loss. And I forgot to mention it earlier in the episode, but they noted that this was specifically due to fat mass loss. This molecule appears to increase the most with a particular style of exercise called HIT, where we do high-intensity aerobic exercise for short periods of time, interspersed by moderate to lower intensity. So cycling on a stationary bike really fast for 30 seconds repeatedly, then cycling moderately in between. That appeared to raise LACV in the blood the most. So LACV may be the mechanism by which high-intensity exercise reduces our appetite. This may be useful for individuals aiming to gain control over their food cravings. Perhaps if we notice that we have food cravings at a particular time of day, we could plan to do some HIT training just before that. His lack fee seems to stay elevated in the blood for about two to three hours. So these effects on appetite might just last around that time frame following a HIT workout. So for example, we could go on and cycle on a stationary bike and go all out for 30 seconds three times in a 15-minute time span. Maybe we can do some jumping squats or jumping jacks or go for a jog where we go faster than slower, faster than slower. And maybe that will help curb food cravings and may help people eat a healthier diet and, and lose weight. The reality is, though, not everyone can do high-intensity aerobic exercise, so please do consult your physician or your physical therapist before starting a new exercise program. I hope that this episode was useful and insightful for you. I know I found it really interesting that we now have a mechanism or a particular molecule that can explain how high-intensity exercise might reduce appetite and help aid with fat loss. If you want to see the papers that I cite in each episode, then make sure to follow me on social media. My handles are in the description box to the show. I use Instagram the most if you by chance have the choice of platform. If you want to buy me a coffee to support the show so that it can keep on running, the links to do so are in the description box too, and I thank you kindly in advance. I hope that you all have an awesome couple weeks, and I look forward to meeting you all back here in two weeks' time for another episode. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.